Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 94. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. Today's special guest is Ray Jason. He is San Francisco's original street juggler. Before I talk to Ray, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. I've been part of the IJA for over 30 years and loved every minute of it. So check them out at juggle.org. Go to Amazon, look for my book, Alex the Great, the story of a juggler working at San Francisco's Pier 39. Now, drop everything. Get ready for Ray Jason. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 94. My special guest, Mr. Ray Jason. Hi, Ray. Hi, Daniel. And where did I catch you at, Ray? Where, where are you living nowadays? I'm uh, at an undisclosed location in Central America in a beautiful little archipelago, living on my sailboat. Okay, let's keep that a mystery, but where were you born? Let's start with that then. I was born in a little town right outside of Philadelphia named Chester, Pennsylvania. And my dad was a research chemist, very, very bright man, very high IQ. And uh, he had a whole bunch of patents in organic chemistry. My mom was a traditional housewife and a wonderful mother. She raised uh, myself and four other siblings, and we had a pretty happy childhood. We moved around a lot as if we were a military family because my dad kept uh, getting better and better job opportunities. And was juggling or the circus a part of your life at all in your family? No, no, utterly not. Uh, nothing entertaining-wise or, or uh, in, in any way that involved show business. And do you remember the first time you saw juggling, whether on TV or in person? Well, that was the era when you would see the old uh, Ed Sullivan-style jugglers, the ones where they would be playing saber dance and somebody would be coming out and, and going uh, extremely rapidly. It, they were really comedic without meaning to be comedic, at least in my impression. But this is something that the the audience might enjoy learning, is that I actually learned from uh, Hovey Burgess in, uh, I forget which year it was, but I was about 13 years old and we were living in Atlanta. So there uh, was this wonderful resort south of Atlanta called Callaway Gardens. And for a summer, they had the Florida State University Circus come up and be the camp counselors. So I learned to juggle, believe it or not, from Hubby Burgess. And he was in the circus in those days. And I learned very rapidly uh, during the week that we were there. And I uh, later ran into Hubby again when he was teaching in the Bowery in New York many years later. And, and what do you remember as, of Hubby as a teacher? Patient, uh, good tips, what do you remember? Both of those. Hubby was a great teacher. And when I saw him teaching at his little studio in the uh, Greenwich Village area many years later, he was still a really great teacher. Uh, Larry Pizzoni was also there that day, Larry Pizzoni from the Pickle Family Circus. He was learning from Hovey in uh, New York City at that time, and then he came west and was involved with the San Francisco Mime Troupe. But Hovey was a dream teacher, and his wife, uh, Judy Finelli, uh, also ended up in the Pickle Family Circus. So there's this pretty small family from the early, early, early days of all of this. Yeah, Judy's a good friend of mine, and she lives about uh, 15 minutes away. I try to see her as often as I can. How's she doing? Yeah, it's difficult with her with the COVID. 
I haven't been able to see her in person for a while, uh, but she's she's doing well. She's her spirit and everything is fantastic. What a great friend! So I really love Judy Finelli. Well, please say hi to her for me. I I have nothing but affection for her, and and uh, she was a terrific member of that troupe. I'll call her tomorrow and let her know because she's a wonderful person. Right. So so when you learned to juggle, was it like life altering? Did you think I'm going to be a juggler, or did you have other desires at that time? When did the juggling bug really stick with you? No, I did not think that I was going to become a juggler. I didn't <laughs> I didn't embrace it that thoroughly. The FSU circus was an extremely fine circus. I think it still is. In fact, I had a kid in the circus who could do a triple named Adrian Katarzy, Nucci Katarzy. But it was just sort of a kid thing. You're 13 years old, you do it for the summer, and then you go back to school and sort of forget about it. When I was in college, there were amateur nights, and so I put together a little little small act to do for amateur night. Uh, probably did it at least two or three times uh, during my college years. But no, I was definitely never thinking that uh, I was going to end up with any kind of circus trade as my basic life's work. Any ideas what you wanted to be before juggling uh, showed up in your life? Well, I was on a path to be uh, a political type person. I was basically a Kennedy idealist. And uh, I did very well in college. And uh, except that I was drafted, uh, drafted out of law school and ended up in Vietnam. And that's what changed everything. So uh, when I got back from Vietnam, I was pretty distressed. That's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. And I was looking around for something to do that wouldn't in no way contribute to the military industrial complex. And people were starting to perform on the streets in San Francisco. Uh, Robert Shields was the king in that, that era. Nobody else particularly extraordinary at the time. But I just thought, heck, I'll uh, try juggling for a few months, see if I get my head straight again and and uh, just do that. I was living in an old gypsy van and, and it was easy and cheap and I was mediocre, but people <laughs> liked it and I kept learning it. Now, if you're in school, I thought that gave you a deferment from the draft. It did in uh, 1968 excuse me, 1967, but in my class, class of 68, we got, uh, let's put this politely, we got screwed. Yeah. In 1969, the draft lottery came in. So if you got a, a high number, you didn't have to worry there, but the class of 68 really got shafted. So basically I was accepted at a few law schools and before I could get to them, I uh, ended up going off to Vietnam on an ammunition ship. I can see how that could change your perspective. So you come back, you are no part of the mainstream. So you decide to become a juggler on the street. How did that idea come to you? Because like you said, you really didn't have that much experience as a juggler. How did you choose juggling? Well, I had more experience of that than I did anything else. I was not a, a singer or a musician or anything. And there were no other jugglers on the street. So I thought there were magicians, there were mimes, there were guitar players. I don't think, you know, I was trying to think about this this afternoon uh, and I can't really recall anybody that was exemplary except for Robert Shields. And he was quite exemplary. I guess in a way it felt like, oh, I'd have a shot at this. I could at least make some spending money. I was living in the truck and it was cheap and it was totally counterculture days. So it was great. So that's why I tried. And I, I obviously did decently enough to uh, keep it running for another 20 years. Okay, so you started in San Francisco. But you don't start like at the Pier 39. What, what were the early pitches like? There was no Pier 39 at that point, literally. 
There was no Ghirardelli for performers. There was no cannery, no anchorage. Basically, we really worked on the streets. Basically, I would go out and try to scout out places that looked possible. So cable car turntables, for example, or down uh, at a wide spot in the sidewalk at Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, You know, and I tried a lot of places that didn't work at all. Chinatown or Golden Gate Park out by the Cliff House. And uh, so I had more than my fair share of failures, but I was flailing away trying to do it. However, there were hippie crafts fairs were just starting at the same time. And there was one announced for down uh, near the Hyatt Hotel down by the Embarcadero. There was going to be a crafts fair in that big plaza beside that really god ugly fountain there. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go down there and see how it goes. That'll be my first try at it. So I spent about a month trying to put together a little act. I had some balls and I had some uh, clubs. In the old days, we'd make our own clubs out of a wooden dowel and this this uh, scholastic stuff that you use in theater. It's really, really crazy. My torches, people will love this. Jugglers will love hearing this. My torches, I made them myself. They were literally galvanized pipe with uh, asbestos fabric as the flaming part and uh, black tape, electrical tape around the, the handle part. They were only about 12 inches long and boy, would those, those uh, torches would spin fast and they would hurt you when you screwed up. So yeah. anyway, so I go down to this, uh, go down to this crafts fair. I'm shy and I'm nervous as hell. And I, I had decided to wear kind of a renaissance outfit, even though there were no Renaissance fairs at that point. So I had tights on and a kind of a frilly shirt and a beret and a little duffel bag with my tricks in it. And I went over and I was too shy to set up right by the craftspeople. So I I set up further away from them and I didn't know how I'd gather a crowd. So I brought along a cheap brass uh, cowbell. And I, so I stood over there very, uh, she she outfit shall we say and rang my cowbell hoping people would come over to see what i was going to do <laughs> nobody i mean hmm. daniel zero people and in fact anybody who was near me walked a further away from me it was just dismal so i thought well what the hell i was going to use the torches as my finale but i decided well i'll light them up and see whether that helps and i lit them up and the speed with which people came over was was just staggering. And so I learned a very early lesson. So I would do a, a little torch stuff at the beginning to gather a crowd in, in those days. And then I would end with a stronger torch routine. So that was my first day, utter failure, followed by uh, medium success. And I guess you learned that people really don't want more cowbell. They want torches. That's right. They, they don't want fire. <laughs> so how did you end up in San Francisco in the first place? Well, a, a variety of reasons. Big uh, Kerouac fan and beat poet fan in in uh, college, and so I had actually hitchhiked out from college to uh, check out, see whether San Francisco was as uh, cool a spot as I I was reading about, and I really did like it. And then also when I got back from place where I got shipped out from, where I got discharged, was Treasure Island, which is in the oh. in the bay. Yeah. So I was already here. So Treasure Island now is just a tourist spot. But back then, they actually used it to transport troops and stuff? Oh, yeah. It was still a functioning Navy base in the 70s. Yeah. Interesting. So how were you received as a street performer early, since you're out there kind of like sort of a guerrilla style, 
were you accepted or was there problems with the police? If you were gathering big enough crowds, which I was, you were a problem to the police. And I really, really always emphasized the safety of the audience, the safety of people who were walking by. I was so adamant about that. I, I remain to this day aggravated by street performers who let their crowds spill out into the streets so that it's dangerous for people uh, when it doesn't take that much effort to pull them in closer. Even though I did that all the time, I was still drawing some pretty big crowds, particularly when I moved over to a spot that was I became fairly famous for called Union Street, which was a nighttime venue for singles bars. So I could go over there and work Fridays and Saturday nights and have a real good work week just doing five or six shows uh, on the sidewalk there for those two nights. So I was gathering a crowd, even though I, I always worked hard at at restraining that and the police came and literally took arrested me <laughs> right and instead of uh getting freaked out about it basically they let me go fairly easily robert shields had got a few times and when his lawyer saw in the papers that i had gotten arrested he had seen my show a few times so he came to my aid and we we pulled a wonderful public relations stunt where we went to a costume shop and rented me a prisoner's outfit hmm. you know with the stri Seriously. stripes yeah the stripes and a ball and chain and he alerted the the chronicle and the examiner was back in the days when there were two papers and they came out and covered it and it got uh, tremendous publicity for myself and for street performing in general it was really well received that's when herb kane started featuring me in his columns a lot i remember the story i think i read it in old juggler's magazine and some of the other prisoners thought you were a cat burglar because of your physique and the way you were dressed. Well, yeah, when I was arrested that night, they wouldn't believe that I got arrested for juggling because I, I had a pretty muscular but slender physique. And I wore an all black outfit except for this one beautiful silver medallion that I that I had been gifted by a craftswoman. And it had like a wanderer on it. I wish I had that now. I, I have no idea where I lost that or where it went. But it's always there so when you go into the jail they take stuff like that off of you so so that you know yeah the fact that you've been shamed by being a juggler you're going you're naturally going to want to hang yourself in your cell <laughs> so anyway when i'm in the holding cell i'm dressed in this all black outfit i'm i look like a, a ninja guy because of mm -hmm. my build and they would not believe me when I told them I was in for, for juggling. And they were all convinced I must be a cat burglar. <laughs> so you're talking about Herb Kane. He was a famous newspaper columnist. Was he the one that started calling you San Francisco's original street performer? No, he never called me that. He called me original street juggler. Mm. But, but Robert Shields was definitely there at least six months ahead of me. Uh, I never have encountered anybody who can claim legitimately that they started street juggling and did it professionally from there on earlier than I did. If somebody comes along and they can prove that to me, so be it. No, I think it's very accepted by the crew here at Pier 39 that you were the first street performer in San Francisco, street juggler, like you say, because Robert Shields is the mime, so he wasn't juggling. Right. He was performing here before you. Any other performers you remember? Boy, good point. I can tell you the first good one would have been Whitney. <laughs> okay. Well, well, a lot of them come and go. You know how that is, Daniel. Sure, sure. Yeah. But Whitney Brown was the first good one after me. And then uh, 
a few more years later, uh, that's when Frankie Olivier came in. Mike Michael Davis was a little bit after Whitney Brown. And uh, I would see Michael in my audiences a lot, studying my techniques. My, I think he was pretty much w- watching more the way I had my interplay with the audience than my skill set, because he, he never was about skill set. He was always about his wonderful comedy delivery with the audience. Those were three of the good ones. And we, we started getting good doubles acts, too. It went from being Nova, no good jugglers around to having a a wealth of jugglers where we had probably seven or eight acts that were really, really nice. So American Dream was in there. The High Street Circus was in there. Oh, you know who was around then? And I should mention, it really emphasizes Dana Smith. Uh, Dana, though, was a combination act. He was a, a juggler, a hand balancer, and he had a trained dog. Are you familiar with Dana? We had him on the podcast. He's, he's one of my best friends here. in the. He lives um, in Martinez, about 20 minutes away. And he's another writer. So uh, me and Dana talk quite a bit. He's a good friend. Oh, that's great. Well, D- Dana and I have a close friendship for 20 years. He lived below me in the same apartment building for a while. And uh, that was testosterone central, I'll <laughs> tell you. And uh, I can see that, you two guys. I can see that. Young... Young Dana and young Ray, I bet you cut up pretty good. We had our moments, yes. And then we also shared the same gym where, uh, yeah, he uh, he actually, in fact, I didn't learn this till only a few, that he, you know, he was off doing uh, that quartering circus thing. Mm-hmm. And then he came back and saw me performing on the streets and that inspired him to leave the circus and and uh, step out on his own. And I, I didn't know that through all those years. So it was nice to learn that, that I helped get him going. And there's one character that always comes up in these early days of San Francisco street performing. What was your relationship like with Robert Nelson, the butterfly man? And when did you first meet him? Well, he wasn't there in the early days. It was quite a while before he came in. Robert and I had a um, amicable relationship. How's that sound? Okay. He could, he could be difficult to get along with. He had his moments, Robert Nelson, you know, where he could be hard to deal with. So, yeah, amicable is good. Yeah, his his style was the opposite of mine. He was aggressive and his humor was very heavy on the personal ridicule of the audience. It was kind of like the Don Ricklesing of the street scene. Mm-hmm. And Robert was very good at it. But the problem is, in my estimation... And I believe you want honesty in this interview, correct? Sure. I want you to be yourself. I want you to say your opinions. Okay. Well, in my opinion, he was excellent at that. He could walk the tightrope of being abusive and yet being funny. But a lot of the others that followed him, it was so much easier to just steal a bunch of jokes from other people that, that are harsh towards your audience and claim that you're a performer. So... There was a definite of directions when Robert arrived on the scene. It was really, uh, to me, uh, a pivotal moment. And I preferred the early, more gentle, friendly, cooperative kind of street performing that we had prior to that. And I'm not expressing this hypocritically. I, I had this conversation with him mm-hmm. many times. And uh, so we had mutual respect kind of packed 
that where we would get along. But uh, like I say, I, I really dislike the direction that the street performing scene went in after his arrival. It seemed to me too that your show was a lot about honesty. Like for you, juggling bowling balls, like, for, like when I juggled bowling balls with my partner, we found the eight pounders or six. We would have got six pounders if we could have. But you actually, when you juggled bowling balls, you wanted to juggle real bowling balls. How, how heavy were the bowling balls you juggled? I juggled 16-pound bowling balls, which are the heaviest ones made. I did that for 15 years. Sure. And uh, when I first started, the first few, first few weeks, Daniel, I did use 12s. But that's only because, and there was nobody doing that. There were, you know, there were some Russian strongman jugglers that I had actually seen on tapes. But there was nobody, in, and those guys are real strongman jugglers. I mean, un unbelievable. But there was nothing in the U.S. that I knew of, at least, going on like that. So for the first few weeks, I did it with this set of 12s. And this was in the day when you could just go to a, to a thrift store and there were bins full <laughs> of bowling balls. You, you just had to go with a scale and find the ones you wanted. So I knew if I could do this successfully with the 12s that I would move up to the 16s. And it only took me a month or two before I moved up to the 16s and I stayed there. I still carry bowling balls with me here on my sailboat. They're not the 16s, they're the 12s because of the fact that I don't do it enough. And because of the fact that where I am, there's no good gymnasium. I just have to use my own dumbbells and do push-ups and stuff. So I don't do it enough. So I, I've gone back to doing 12s and I only do them. I do a show every year or so. Two years ago, I, I got sideways on it and it got way out of control. And instead of just letting them drop, I tried to bring one back in and I torqued my shoulder real bad. It took a year to recover, mm. but I can still juggle really well. And, you know, I, I certainly know the way the juggling world has gone through these years. I mean, Back in the early days, I was a hell of a juggler. Nowadays, I'd, I'd be sixth string in a, a convention. So it's, it's fabulous to see how phenomenal the jugglers have become. But I think that all of the street, the great street jugglers learned a lesson early. The technique will not cut it alone. That basically you have to have both solid technique and a decent personality and great interplay with the audience. I assume that's that's the lesson you have learned as well, correct? Well, plus working outdoors has certain limitations. So a lot of the fancy tricks that you can do in a controlled controlled environment aren't as good as juggling three bowling balls. Right. Because no matter how hard that wind is blowing at Pier 39, you know, you got three 16 pounders, that trick's gonna pretty much stay the same. Exactly, and that was a big factor uh, in doing that is that I knew that uh, it wouldn't get crazy like if you're doing the cigar boxes out there, you, you know, you'd be sometimes lucky to have them land within five feet of you. <laughs> and one of your other big routines, another honest routine, was juggling torches blindfolded. And you really made sure that there was no gimmick. You actually juggled them blindfolded. When did you start doing that? And how was your success rate? Oh, early on, probably only two years in, uh, Dan. And uh, the success rate was very solid. I had in my days a lot of high uh stress gigs you know i, I mm -hmm. performed for queen elizabeth i performed at four super bowls i did all those years with the 49ers and when you're out at the middle of the field at candlestick park and the jumbotron's on you you don't want to screw up so anyway it was so smooth that i would always have to 
prove to the people as best I could. I'd bring volunteers up out of the crowd to put the actual blindfold on, and I'd use some comic bits in front of them to try to demonstrate that it was legit. But even then, they wouldn't believe it. And so what I would do, Daniel, is I would always drop on the first attempt and then try to make it on the second attempt. Sometimes I didn't. Some didn't make it at all. But <laughs> right. That was very rare. I mean, usually I would make it on the second try or on the third. So I was solid on it. Yeah, I was proud of the bowling balls. I was proud of the torches blindfolded. And I was very proud of the torches lying on my back. I never saw other jugglers doing those legitimately. And so also with the blades, when I first started, Brian Dubay wasn't even around. We're friends, and I, most of my gear is, is uh, top-of-the-line Dubay gear. But there were no fake juggling knives. Basically, I always used uh, stuff that you got from the hardware store. I had a real hatchet. I had a real machete. I had a real sickle. And they were, uh, and I would slice carrots and celery and stuff to prove how sharp they were to, to the various people in the audiences. Now, you mentioned something very briefly, but it was a big part of your career. Let's talk about your job as the San Francisco 49ers official juggler. It was like all the great gigs that I got, uh, Daniel. Uh, this might be helpful to some young jugglers out there. I literally never had an agent. I never had a video. I had a piss-poor promo packet. It was really just a, something I threw together because some people had asked for it. And all my gigs came from standing out on the street corner, doing the best I could and having people offer me stuff. So uh, I was approached by the entertainment director from the 49ers, and he brought me out for a couple of games in uh, 1979, and fans really loved it. What I would do specifically is every time there was a timeout, the cheerleaders were working somewhere in the stadium uh, doing a cheer directed up towards the 5,000 people in front of them right there, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would be doing the same thing, and we would rotate around the stadium. So every time there was a, a timeout, I would do one routine in the south end zone, and I would do, say, bowling balls there. And then I'd slide around to the 20-yard line, and I'd do torches there. And then I'd slide to midfield, and I would do four footballs or something like that. Uh, that was in 1979. I did two or three gigs like that, two or three games. And the fans were fabulous. They really enjoyed it. So the team decided to bring me in in 1980 as their quote-unquote official juggler, the only one that ever existed in the NFL that I'm aware of. I stayed for 11 seasons and I was basically, I basically came in with Joe Montana and went out with Joe Montana. Uh, so I was there for the golden years of the San Francisco 49ers Super Bowl runs. And, and I was treated so well by those people. Uh, the last Super Bowls, they uh, paid all expenses for my mom to come to the games. Uh, those were in New Orleans and Miami, Super Bowls 23 and 24. And they, they were such a great first class outfit. Yeah, I had a, a lot of great times out there. Can I tell once, once, one? Of course, this is your podcast, my friend. You go ahead. This is such a great, I wish I could be on video to show everybody. So I got hired to also go overseas and do some of the overseas games for the NFL. The 49ers were a premier team. So the one we did in Japan, Daniel, was such a hoot because mm -hmm. they have no clue of American football over there. But they papered the house and they literally, the big corporations 
gave free tickets to the Japanese. So the, we, it was, took place in the Tokyo Bowl. It's a dome, about 50,000 capacity. <laughs> so these were all people who knew nothing about football. They didn't know anything about the, even the teams that they had the best team of that era playing the San Francisco 49ers with the greatest star, Joe Montana. And we over there to play the, the L.A. Rams when they were still in L.A. then. <laughs> and the Niners sent me a juggler along with the cheerleaders and they sent the Rams sent a baton twirler, a male baton twirler who was extraordinary. He was really great. Well, the, the fans were so clueless that every time there would be a long pass, they had just never seen anybody throw a big ball that far. They'd seen baseball. They have baseball in Japan. And so there'd be this crowd reaction where everybody would just go, Oh, <laughs> right. It was just amazing. The whole time the pass was in the air. They didn't care whether it was caught or whether it was intercepted. They had knew nothing about it. And then when the teams would leave the field, but you know, when the offense was leaving, the defense was coming on, they would applaud for that. They had no clue. It was just so great. Well, anyway, they had a clue about how good this damn juggler was and this baton twiller. We were getting saws than the team the teams were that literally the NFL main office called onto the field and <laughs> right. told told them to tone down the juggler and the baton twirler. So they literally came up to me just before halftime and they said, Ray, you can't do the knives in the second half. You can't do the bowling balls. You can't do the torches. All you can do is the five balls, the three balls and the cigar boxes. I went, what? And anyway, but they they were adamant about that. Well, there was one more timeout before halftime was going to start. So I was determined, man, I was going to nail those bowling balls. I was going to do 50 throws if I could. So when the time came, I just blasted it, Daniel. I mean, I must have done <laughs> throws and they were going crazy there. Anyway, so I did that. I felt happy. I, I nailed that one. This And I'm, I tend to turn around. I'm sitting on the bowling balls and I'm watching the, the pre-planned halftime show. And I get this little tap on my shoulder and I look up and it's somebody that I don't know. And then he points up to the stands and I hadn't noticed it because I was concentrating. <laughs> but there's this enormous sumo wrestler guy sitting there. They had taken stands, literally seats out of there. And he had a big couch he was sitting on and this was his attendant. <laughs> so this was the God of sumo, right? Yeah. And so his attendant has come down to ask me if the sumo rep champion could come and meet me. Nice. Okay. So how, how are you going to deny that, right? And sure, I sure, sure. I didn't want to. So he comes down, and I, I won't use the word uh, that a duck might imply, but he comes down. Oh, I see, because of his size. He's sort of waddling down. Yes. Okay. I mean, just getting down the narrow steps. He's a big man, I imagine, like three or four hundred pounds or something. Or? Yeah, more like four hundred. Yeah. And so he he gets there and he and he's dressed in his real nice outfit. And now the whole stadium is paying like zero attention to the halftime show, and they're watching the sumo master come down to to chat with the juggler, right? So he comes over, and now I'm standing, and we do the whole bowing thing, and he looks at the bowling balls and he points to them. And he implies, can he lift one up to see if they're real? And uh, so I said, sure, sure, sure. So he picks up one, and it's a 16-pound bowling ball. It's impressive anytime you pick them up. And he does a little dip with it. He's got it out in front of him. And then he does this deep bow to me, and the friggin' stadium. Yeah. 
applause. It was one of the highlights of my career because it was so unpredictable. How could anybody ever expect something like that? But it was just so beautiful. And it made up for me not being able to, to na nail it on the second half. So uh, anyway, there's a story you're probably not going to hear from too many jugglers. It sounds like a good day. Another good day for you was July 17th, 1981. What was that day? Oh, that was a great day. That was my 10th anniversary as a street performer, a street juggler in San Francisco. And the mayor, Diane Feinstein at the time, declared that Ray Jason Day in San Francisco. as a silly, fancy proclamation. And I was hosting an event by then. I had started on my fifth anniversary as a street performer holding, hosting events once a year. It was called Ray Jason's Anniversary Show. And I would bring in the top variety performers that I could get to come and work for free from the Bay Area. And we were so rich in them. Yeah. I would do that as a way to thank the people of San Francisco for supporting street performers for all those years and also to highlight their talents and kept doing it in bigger and bigger and bigger venues. First, I did it on my street corner at Union Street. Then I did it in Ghirardelli. Then we started doing it in those big uh, warehouses down at at Fort Mason. I mean, crowds of like 5,000 people. I was uh, given that proclamation on the night of that anniversary show by uh, one of the city supervisors who brought it out and read it in front of everybody. And I had been able to fly my mom out from Florida for the event. And it was so heartwarming. I don't know whether anybody else has gotten it besides me and Robert, Robert Shields. Hopefully some others have. But uh, when I left in 92, to, at that point, I think we were the only two that ever got that. And also you were very beloved in San Francisco because you were also memorialized in a statue. So these are things I don't think other jugglers have. They don't have their own day and they don't have their own statues. Are the statues still somewhere I can see them in San Francisco? Oh, yeah, definitely. But please uh, don't over-exaggerate it. It's not my own statue. Oh, okay. What it is is two beautiful statues by a very famous Japanese-American sculptress named Ruth Ozawa. Her style was very whimsical. And she did this beautiful bronze fountain by the Hyatt Union Square Hotel. It's still there. And uh, she, she, in those days, she was doing little clay models that she would then cast into bronze. So these two sculptures were basically uh, what she called San Francisco notables. So aspects of San Francisco that she really liked. I was honored to be included in the one at the Hyatt Hotel. And then later at another hotel down closer to Market Street that just changed, changed names. And then she did a big panels. It was not a fountain. When you drive into this hotel, there are these big uh, bas relief panels. And I'm on the same panel. You'll, you'll get a kick out of this knowing San Francisco. The panel that I'm on, and I'm she's got me juggling... Uh, out of a window at Ghirardelli Square. So I'm leaning out of a window at Ghirardelli Square. And, and on the same panel with me is Herb Kane, Joe Montana, and Emperor Norton. How's that? Mm. Yeah, good company. <laughs> now, I read something about your blogs, and we'll talk about your blogs coming up. But you have a philosophy about the difference between being famous versus being beloved. So what does that statement mean to you? Well, there's a big difference, and it's a wonderful difference. And I should inject here, perhaps, that I was pretty good friends with Robin Williams. And in fact, uh, one of the movie companies, I think it was Universal, but it might have been Paramount, paid me to teach Robin how to juggle, which he ended up doing in a few movies. 
when I would do that, we would meet three or four times a week. And I was uh, at a gymnasium, a downtown gym uh, in the old days, a men's club style gym. And I, I had a private room where I could go in where he, he and I wouldn't be bothered. We'd spend an hour or two. And he was a quick learner. He learned balls in like two sessions. I had him juggling clubs in a week. Afterwards, we would go around the corner just to hang out with each other to a little old juice bar. In the old days when there were juice bars where little old ladies who, who were the waitresses were dressed like nurses in these white outfits, it was really quite a thing. <laughs> okay. It was really thing and so we would go there and just chat about life in general we worked quite a few benefits together throughout the year as you know where we'd be on the same bill and he would get mobbed so often and he would say to me that that he really loved the fact that i was beloved and he was famous and that that uh, people would come up to me and they wouldn't start drooling and go crazy they would basically say, hey, Ray, I saw your show at Ghirardelli and I really loved it. And I brought my family the next week to see you at Pier 39. And all that. And it was like they genuinely dealt with you as a human being instead of as a god. And to me, that was way, way more desirable than the phoniness and, and this tragedy of, of mega fame. I mean, look what it did to Robin. Yeah, I, we had the chance to work with him for quite a few years, me and my partner. And we saw situations where people, they would meet him and just break down. They would just start crying because just meeting him was so intense for them. And that must have been quite an experience just to have people so, who don't know you, but they already love you so much and they're just so excited to be in your presence that they don't even treat you as a human almost. You're more of, a, of an icon or a, a creation of theirs than an actual person who's just trying to live their life in some degree. Yes, it exactly. seemed to me. You know. Exactly. And that's a burden. It's a heavy burden. He and I talked about it a lot. And, and he was, a, people don't realize what a sensitive soul he was. You maybe got a glimpse of that. And, uh, you know, good hearted person. And, and uh, yeah, I was heartbroken when I heard the news. There was, there was illnesses involved, but I think also just, um, like you said, he was a very two-sided person, I thought. He was very on when he wanted to be on, but there definitely was that side of him that did seem very shy and very uh, sensitive and, and fragile. So, you know, that's probably a lot he had to deal with. And then in addition to getting so sick at the end, uh, a real tragedy, the way he, he died. As, it was sad for everybody, sad for me and my partner too. A uh, real loss, you know, for him to go that way. Well, okay, let's, let's bring on some other uh, stars though. Let's bring a more upbeat subject because you also opened for other celebrities any stories about some of these celebrities you opened with? Because you opened for John Denver, uh, Ray Charles, Rich Little. Any celebrity stories about being on tour or opening up for uh, other acts? Oh, boy, I did such a range of different people. Uh, I have a wonderful story about Dizzy Gillespie, of all people. <laughs> Just... Let's hear the Dizzy Gillespie story. <laughs> so I'm working one of these wonderful winery gigs where it was the Paul Masson Winery down near Saratoga, California wasn't up in the wine country. It's a jazz in the vineyard kind of thing, thing. And I had worked, I'd opened for a few other acts. It was one of those good gigs where you basically had maybe 300 people, but it, but they'd already had a beautiful wine tasting. It was part of their ticket price and a, and a light meal. They're all table seating, high-end crowd. It was really great fun in a gorgeous setting. And they provided me and whichever girlfriend I was with at the time of free accommodations at the winery there for the weekend as well. So 
Anyway, uh, I did my sh my show, and it was a it was a wireless show where you got a, a good wireless mic, and you really can communicate all the way to the back. Your funny comedy stuff that you're striving to to scream when you're in a street situation. Yeah, I rocked it. A uh, really good set. And then Dizzy came out, and the way they had it, the VIP seating was literally stage left. There were like two rows, and so when I finished, they didn't strike my prop table. They just put it over to the side where I was going to be sitting with my lady friend. <laughs> so we were just sitting there, and we watched Dizzy's set, and he was just phenomenal. And after his first encore, he comes over, and he pulls me out of my seat, brings me up into the center of the stage. I had no idea what he was going to be doing. And then he's got his trumpet, and it's a very uh, different trumpet because anybody who knows of Dizzy Gillespie, it's angled up at about 45 degrees. So he, he's got his trumpet in his right hand. Then he goes over to my prop stand, and he picks up three of my balls, comes back to center stage. He ends me the trumpet, and then he, he tells me to blow a few notes. And I try and I get little flatulent sounds out of it. I get nothing, right? <laughs> right. And then, then he says, watch this. And I swear to goodness, Daniel, he he did a juggling pattern that was only like 12 inches high. I mean, he was he had a really tight little cascade pattern. Just floored me and the whole rest of the audience. It was just great. Yeah, he was a character. His big thing was he could puff his cheeks out. That, yep. It was yeah. pretty... <laughs> Because he was a trumpeter. It was bizarre. Yeah. Well, you also toured with the Jefferson Airplane, is that correct? I was touring with the Jefferson Starship. Oh, Starship. Okay. Yeah, they went through three evolutions. Uh, airplane, Starship, and then Jefferson Starship, and then Starship. But I was with them when they had uh, two of their big hits, uh, Miracles and uh, Do You Believe? No, that's from Miracles. I One, one other hit. And... We did, I did two tours with them, national tours as their opening act. It was a great idea, actually, because there would be an opening act, which was a musical act. So it'd be like a Quicksilver Messenger Service, somebody kind of on the way down. Instead of just strike, you know, slowing all the action down and striking the first band stuff, which is downstage of the of the, the main headliner band, and which is behind a scrim, what they did was they would drop a scrim uh, down in front of the opening act and then they'd have a little flyer out in front for me nice yeah so i would work out there in front of the scrim they'd they'd be striking uh, all of the equipment from the uh opening act and i'd be up there doing my my show it was it was uh non-verbal it was all uh visual and not music either i just i had to hold them with that and these are we were working 20,000 seaters most of that tour. So right. it was quite a challenge, but it was great fun, too. And I had a pretty solid show. I would do uh, – here's a good example from the trip of silly stories. I put together a cigar box routine where I, I used a black light, and I did the cigar boxes in day-glow paint. So the front colors were red, yellow, and blue. But on the back, I had them all painted orange, the side that I was normally working with close to me. Yeah. Well. All these kids would get stoned on acid like one day a year when the Starship came to town, right? So I'd have all these <laughs> incredibly wrecked people, particularly down in the front. And I would do the routine with the black light, and it was really getting some great response. And then I'd suddenly flip all three of them over, and there'd be this 
bar of orange. It would like sear their eyeball. <laughs> right. I'd flip it back so it was red, yellow, and blue again. And they'd, they'd all wonder whether they were seeing that or not, right? So uh, some of the people would come to me afterwards and say, oh, man, the concert was so great, but kept seeing that damn band of orange all night long. I said, well, it's, don't blame it on me. It was the, the uh, window pane. So. so remember, kids, don't do drugs. <laughs> yes. That's the message there. Yeah, it was a uh, good fun. And so I, as I was ending uh, first tour, I did the uh, torches, apple unicycle as my end. The second tour, I did the uh, bowling balls. As I was ending, all the set, uh, the musical instrument stuff had been taken out from behind me. And then as I, as the applause built for the finale, I'd run off the stage. The starship would hit the first chords of their opening song. The scrim would fly up. The lights would blast on. It was beautiful theater, Daniel. Sounds like fun. But the last interview was Chris Bliss, who did the Jackson tour, uh, the Michael Jackson victory tour. And there's really been nothing like that since. Like nobody really opens up jungler wise for, for bands anymore. Yeah. It just sounds like a really fun gig to me, you know, to travel with a band. This was really different from Chris's stuff. And in fact, Danny Schur, who was Bill Graham's number two booker, Bill would book the Stones or the Who or the really, really big headliners, and Danny would book everybody else. But Danny would turn me on to Chris Bliss early, early on. So what I was doing was quite different from that, because basically he was doing a musical piece that was quite strikingly choreographed to... Beatles music, actually. Yeah. I forget. He says Golden Slumbers was the the tune. Okay. Well, uh, he did that great. But that was only like uh, five or six minutes. And it was, and, you know, he had a whole bunch of balls. So if he would drop, he could just reach down and pick one up. But I was doing a a real routine with six or seven different uh, tricks. So all all kinds of things. I I also did, uh, this was really tough, five hoops with a strobe light on. Holy moly, that was hard. <laughs> I, I have trouble when, this, when the ceiling is kind of striped, because then it kind of gives a strobe effect. I can imagine doing it with the actual strobe lights. Yeah. But it looked great. It looked like there were uh, fish up there, man. Felt like it, too. <laughs> you actually had a whole, a whole show you did, and to do it silently, that must have been pretty intense. Like, those are some pretty big crowds. But I guess it helps, like you say, that they were kind of in the mood to see juggling. I had done a bunch of shows previously, like at Winterland, for a lot of people. And and so I, it was pretty much time-tested. And they were all almost all like that. Occasionally, if I was doing boiler room shows, if I was doing something like I, like Tom Petty or, or Todd Rundgren or, or uh, Lee Greenwood or somebody, I could have a wireless mic because I'd be in a thousand-seater. And yeah. so I could comedy as well as the juggling which you obviously prefer but that was a really great challenge doing that non-verbally without music i I envied chris being able to do that so well so he was great at it i presume he's still great at it so he's still working he's a a very successful comedian i have nothing but admiration for chris so Uh, let me bring this in too i probably some you remember air jazz back in those days of course one of my favorite acts right me too and and basically I always wished that I could do that on the streets, but anybody who tried to do musical juggling on the streets never succeeded. Maybe some drummer acts did, but I never saw anybody that succeeded. They were always in concert halls or colleges, you know, back in those days. So now the stuff I work on basically is my torch routine is uh, beautifully choreographed to music. And my three ball routine is beautifully choreographed to music because I'm just doing it 
for myself. I do it for gigs here and there when I feel like doing a benefit for somebody or talent contest or something. What was the dance of the space juggler routine? Was that a, a glow light thing? What was that? That was pretty minor. It was something that I was doing in theater settings. Usually I'd be part of a dance program, a modern dance program. Uh, that's pretty minor. <laughs> I just there's a picture and it's just uh, very, very different than your usual style. Because usually, like you say, you're dressed like in sort of this bodybuilding attire, showing off your muscles. And in that one, you're very dressed sort of futuristically in kind of a space outfit. So it's just very different than your usual types of routines. No, I actually looked like an alien. That was the intention, as, as if it was an alien juggler. And it was set with some Moog synthesizer music, early, early Moog synthesizer music. So it was really quite a stunning piece, but there just wasn't enough places to do it. I also did tap dancing in my routine as well, where I would juggle and tap dance. But the stages, Daniel, at Ghirardelli and the Cannery and the Pier were so spongy that I actually blew out my right knee tap dancing and juggling. So I was always trying to push it a little bit and try to do something different. There's a sort of a formula out there that's hard to get away from. Well, at a certain time, you created your own stage because you had a truck, a 1933 Ford truck that you used as a stage. Uh, wasn't that something you would sort of drive out so you could find a place on the streets in San Francisco? It had a variety of usages. I did that. I would go to spots where uh, the sidewalk might be not wide enough to serve as a pitch. But if I'm up on the truck and there, the people are all on the sidewalk, it would work out great. <laughs> and I used it a lot at uh, various crafts fairs or county fairs and also in parades. It was a huge hit in parades because and it was a beautiful truck. It's, it's like a Model A truck, basically. And I found one fairly cheap. And then I an acquaintance who restored old things and he guided me and I did almost all of it myself, except for the engine work. And it came out beautifully and uh, everybody loved it that saw it. And I loved working on it. But I would do these parades and always, almost always won an, an award in a parade. And it was because I would drive down until the parade sort of got clogged a little bit. I'd be actually driving the thing. And, and then I'd jump up onto the back deck when we were stopped and I'd do a quick routine. I'd jump back in the cab, hit my awooga horn and drive off and just people loved it. It was just great. And the other alternative was I would usually have a, a sexy lady friend drive it. And then uh, she'd sometimes get out and hand me some props to the uh, delight, delight of the audience. So it was, a, it was a really fun thing. It didn't work out as well as I had hoped because it turned out that the rear end on that was too low. And so I couldn't take it on the freeway without fearing that it was going to blow up. Oh, right. Because it does seem like a great idea that like, you can just drive up somewhere and you have your own stage. You're just ready to go. I think it's a great idea. Hey, you know what? Here's a nice segue from that. When Pier 39 first opened, I was on the billboards along there, about three or four of us. Hokum W. Jeebs was one, Suggs and Mime. We were the three performers featured on the big, huge billboards. But they gave me a spot where I could drive in, and they had stage lights rigged, so I would drop a spot up near the front of the pier, and that would be my own pitch. So I'd have this massive space. Well, unfortunately, you know Pier 39 well enough in there where it's almost impossible to do a, a show because of the frigid wind currents. So that didn't work out as well as I thought. But 
one night I'm I'm there and the security guys come up to me and they say, uh, Mr. Eastwood would like would like to meet you. I said, <laughs> right. The Mr. Eastwood. And they said, yes, the Mr. Eastwood. And I, I said, sure, I'd be glad to meet him. And the next show, I'm looking at the audience and he was standing in the back, obviously hard to miss, with one of his boys who was only little. It was like nine or 11 or something. And he was very much deliberately not calling any attention to himself. I did a nice set after people had finished putting money in the hat. He ambled on over and asked me if I'd like to go out for a drink. He needed to talk about the truck. Well, he was just about to start doing his uh, Billy. See, remember the one that was a, an old Wild West show in the late 50s? Yeah. Billy something, on the, Billy, something on the Cowboys or something? Yeah, because it was an old Wild yeah. West show, Billy. I've forgotten the name of it, but he was going to be using a truck for that. And he wanted to ask me a bunch of questions about the truck. And they ended up using a uh, 1950s truck, which made sense because that's the era that he was the the Wild West show was dying in. And also it was an era where it was it was a truck that that had so much more advanced mechanics that that, uh, you know, you actually could drive it around. So anyway, we had a nice hour where we went to a nearby bar, and I think his name was Kyle. I don't know. The son had some Coke, and he and I had a couple of beers and, and chatted. He was finishing up Escape from Alcatraz. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, great. He was about to do the Billy, Bronco Billy, I think it was. Bronco Billy. Yeah, okay. A delightful hour, hour and a half, chatting about various things. Obviously, I know what his life is like. Very pleasant, very unassuming. You know, what you, what you hope for from people who you're in positions of power like that. Did they ever say to you, you feel a lucky punk? Yes. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. Yeah. Left Eastwood. Hey, let's do another segue. Talking about segues, because after you sort of left San Francisco, you've had a whole other adventurous life. Tell me about your life at sea and being a sea gypsy. Well, uh, it was an intriguing thing, leaving. I had bought my beautiful sailboat in 1985. And I took a lot of the buskers out. We'd go out for sales. In fact, uh, shortly after I bought it, I had a party on board in which we got a whole bunch of buskers together to sand the teak. And so everybody only had to sand like two feet of the teak to get her looking good. And then I'd put some beautiful varnish on her. But literally, we had like 14 buskers on board. If, if somebody had dropped a bomb there, you'd have taken out half of the West Coast fleet in, in one uh, bomb yeah i would take uh, lots of people out for sales and i could see a trend happening in san francisco that was disturbing me a little bit and i was beginning to think well maybe i'll sail away from this and and open a new chapter in my life and by the 1990s i was really seeing it and basically what had happened was in my humble opinion in the beginning daniel we were all out there just faking it trying to figure it all out but we came out of that, that hippie counterculture of basically a sense of cooperation rather than a sense of competition and trying to make our city a little bit, bit better, brighter place with our entertainment. And what happened was that first generation of performers were followed by a second generation 15, 20 years later, because 71 is when I started. So by the late 80s, it was a whole, whole different group. And a lot of them were coming in and basically they were all they were 
trying to do was wander around, steal enough bits from enough people's acts, put it together, say it was their own act, and then try to get discovered for a sitcom or for a comedy competition. It was just such a different feeling. And the joy and the golden age feeling that those of us at the very beginning had was starting to get rusty. And, you know, I'd rather walk away from it than see it deteriorate too much more. And the other acts couldn't believe that I left because I was still pretty much one of the very top acts uh, in the area. And I'm glad I did. You know, on, when I've gone back and visited, and I always go down and watch everybody, see how they're doing and, and whatnot. So in uh, 92, I sailed off and uh, I've been wandering around living on my boat for almost 30 years. And I literally have not lived ashore for more than a year during that whole time. If I get a gig somewhere uh, doing something, it's been great. Some of the highlights of the sailing life for me have been, I did this solo race from San Francisco to Hawaii and sailed back 50 days at sea where any move could be your last move. So that was great, great experience. More recently, I did a really, what would be considered by most skillful sailor is a really amazing thing. I, I successfully crewed on a sailboat going across the Northwest Passage from Canada to uh, from basically St. John's, Newfoundland, all the way to uh, Alaska. That's one of the most dangerous trips in the world. Took 86 days, stuck in ice for many of those days, and really quite an amazing adventure. It's been great. And speaking of danger, What's the danger of poodles in hurricanes? <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, you must have seen my first book. I did. I read your first book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I have two books out. And there's a story in there called The, the Hurricane and the Poodle. And uh, amongst the readers, it's one of their favorite stories. That one, as well as the one called A Sailor and His Donkey. Those are really crazy stories. But basically, in preparing for Hurricane George, which was about to hit uh, Key West in 1989, I was in a funky little marina. And the first hurricane in like 70 years to hit uh, Key West was bearing down on us. And one of the things that you do in preparing for a hurricane is you secure all kinds of stuff that, so that there's nothing loose that can fly around and injure you or damage a boat. Well, there was this big trawler on my port side, big uh, high trawler, and the people were not there at the time, and they had left, and they had been completely uh, irresponsible in terms of preparing their boat for hurricane season. So they weren't there. Nobody was going to attend to it. I went over to, to make sure things were secured, especially on the There was dive tanks. There was a barbecue. There was propane tanks. Ugh. And all of which could destroy my boat if they came at me. And they were only six feet away from me. They also had a poodle. <laughs> well, unbeknownst to me, these people didn't clean up the poodle turds. Oh, okay. That were lying all around the, the deck where you go into the main cabin, drive the boat from. Well, in the middle of the, the hurricane, it, it basically got to category two which is 120 miles an hour more or less a friend was over because his boat had sunk and he was over on my boat and we heard the line break it sounds like a shotgun gun going off on the friggin next to me so we went racing over there to try to reconnect the lines before it bashed my boat in and sank my boat and as we're 
climbing up the ladder and going up the side deck. <laughs> it's, you know, in a hundred knots of wind. My friend is in front of me and I'm hollering up to him through these, game, these winds. Poodle turds! Poodle turds! <laughs> and he's going, what? What? I'm going, poodle turds! Poodle turds! And it had to be the most amazing response. Uh, you would, you would amazing call you would ever have in the middle of a hurricane. But sure enough, there were these soggy poodle turds that uh, he got all over his foul weather gear. So that's the poodle turd story. Nice. And if people want to read about your adventures, your book is called Tales of a Sea Gypsy and available on Amazon.com. But you also have a blog. So let's plug your blog. It's www.seagypsyphilosopher.blogspot.com. So people can all read about your adventures on a sailor, your adventure of a sailing life. And what's next for Ray Jason? Well, excellent question. It's the box of chocolates option that I feel very, very blessed to have experienced for, wow, Jesus, Dan, I just realized, 1971, this is 2021, it's 50 years, half yes. a century, since I stepped out onto that plaza to, to ring my cowbell, huh? Wow. <laughs> Nice, an exciting 50 years, an adventurous 50 years. Good for you. Nice. By the way, one of the things we didn't mention, and I'll just give a quick allusion to it, is I juggled my way around the world in 1979 and 1980. I, hit, I le left San Francisco with $4,000, a little act and a backpack, came back about a year later with 4400 and pre performed in the most amazing places, had such a great time. Anyway, box of chocolates. Basically, I love the various things that occupy me. I love the, the philosophy stuff that I write for my blog. I have readers in over 150 countries and uh, nearly a half a million hits. And I, I love my working on my juggling. I love working on the boat. I love my community here. I love sailing the boat. Anytime I want to head off for a big sailing adventure, I can do so. So... No specific plan to emphasize one or the other. I enjoy doing all of them. And also, I'm in, I'm in a sweet spot here in Central America. It's a, I found a really, really, really nice paradise-like place that's not gentrified. It's really nice and real. Great nature here uh, where you can really escape. You haven't, I, mean, I haven't heard a car alarm in five years. You hear a siren maybe once every six months from the volunteer fire department. I mean, it's so mellow here so uh my motto at my blog i've managed to re refine my life's motto or my life's goals down to six words help many harm none be amazed and i'm able to do all that with this life that i'm currently leading and i stay healthy and happy and what more do you want well thank you so much i really loved having you on the show your life is amazing. Your adventures are amazing. And what, it's so great to catch up with you, Ray. And thank you so much for being on Drop Everything. Thank you once again, the amazing, original San Francisco street juggler, Ray Jason. Thanks, Ray. You're quite welcome. That was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 94. My conversation with San Francisco's original street juggler, Ray Jason. Copies of his book, Tales of a Sea Gypsy, are available on Amazon.com. Don't forget, Amazon's also the home of Alex the Great, a story of a street performer, juggler, looking to make it big. Let's also go visit the IJA at juggle.org and thank them for sponsoring this podcast. 
And thank you for listening from all the folks here at Holzman Enterprises. Now go out there and drop everything, except when you're juggling.